This is Mitch Horowitz. You're listening to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. No better place to be. All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with occult historian, author, and lecturer Mitch Horowitz about the founding fathers of mysticism in America, the colonial roots of folk horror, Satanism, his new book, Modern Occultism, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Just so we have a platform to leap from here, just have this icebreaker I like to ask everyone. So why don't you take us back in time? You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above? Oh, definitely all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> I would build forts outside, bring books out there, and then like participate in the destruction of the same fort at a certain point. So as all of the above. <laughs> Awesome. So uh, when it comes to books, did you have a author or maybe a genre that you lean towards? Were you a fantasy guy? Well, I was very interested in, I remember I was very touched by reading 1984 by Orwell, uh, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Um, those are two formative books that, that stick out in my mind. Uh, there were lots of others, you know, there were there was fantasy literature, you know, some kind of holdover pulp fiction like Doc Savage. Mm -hmm. But I, I remember those books making a deep impression on me. Good ones. So what about when you think back to maybe formative films and television shows that you grew up, what impacted you the most, would you say? Oh, there was a lot. Um, I would say that, well, it's it's always difficult to speak in terms of past and present, you know, because there's a lot of, a, a lot of films have made a very, very deep impression on me recently, including uh, A Most Violent Year, starring Oscar uh, Isaac's cinema version of uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, made a huge, huge impact on me. I would say growing up, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, if you remember that mm -hmm. one, made a big impact on me. The Shining made a very big impact on me. Arguably the scariest movie ever made, at least yeah. in my household. The, the tub scene, I already as soon as you said The Shining, the tub scene got me, popped in my yeah, head. Yeah, I remember, <laughs> I was going to include this in an article, but I thought, you know, it sounded too cute. But the fact is, remember I was house-sitting in a very lonely, isolated part of Brooklyn uh, when I was age 19. And uh, I got stoned, I smoked some weed, and I decided in this very lonely three-story brownstone to watch The Shining. Not a good idea. And it scared <laughs> the hell out of me. So in terms of impression, I mean, there's so many movies that, that left very deep impressions on me. But I think that 
for one thing I have to say about The Shining is that it's so viscerally frightening, and yet I always point out to people there are very few acts of physical violence in the film itself, which is quite remarkable. That's kind of unheard of these days, where it's kind of like a torture porn kind of era that we're in. Yeah, horror films. which I don't do well with. You know, yeah. like I, I've made the effort, for example, to watch uh, Walking Dead because there's a lot I appreciate about it. And I do recognize that some of the extreme gore is satirical. There is a sense of humor about the show. And yet I just find it a little too much week after week to figure out how, how can we top last week's gross out. And I find that that has impacted the genre so that a lot of writers um directors who may or may not be approaching it with a sense of satire a sense of humor feel they have to up the ante on gore and i i understand it you know and i'm not a a, a little wilting flower but <laughs> i can live without it and i i have had some of the most frightening experiences shining being prime example of films that that don't go heavy on the gore well said and as a matter of fact atmosphere is everything to me in a horror film you can point to modern horror films like the witch you know very, like you said very little physical altercations or torture porn like we said it's just the atmosphere of movies like the witch kind of harken back to that that visceral religious no. melting pot we were all founded on i guess the country no. I guess. and that's that's one of the things that since your show to some extent is horror themed uh, I, I, I don't think this would be too much of a tangent. That's one of the things that put me off of Stephen King after a while. I, I think King is a genuinely good guy, and he does have a genuine point of view that, that he wishes to express in his books. But many, many years ago, I was very greatly looking forward to a new King novel called The Cell, about how cell phones are turning people into mindless uh blood splattering zombies and this was when we were all still bopping around with our little flip phones before you could even foresee how much greater this this issue of distraction would become but even then i was excited for it and i found that for every nickel's worth of 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 philosophy there was a dollar's worth of gore mm. and i was disappointed because that wasn't why i was going for the book and I, I, again, I don't want to. I don't want to dump on King. I mean, he's a very big target, and 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 as such, you know, it's easy for people to do so. I think his his novels of uh, The Shining and Salem's Lot were not only brilliant, but I see Salem's Lot as a model work of fiction. I, mm -hmm. I see that as a work of fiction that could be taught from. So I admire the man, but even in his work, I I got weary with that. Mitch, this is something I like to ask everyone. Uh, what scared you as a kid? What scared me as a kid? The number one thing that scared me was that my guardians, whoever they may have been at a given moment, would turn out to be crazy. And I used to have this recurrent fantasy, which I wanted to turn into a campfire story or a, a short story if I was a fiction writer, that a group of scouts are in the woods and uh, there's an escaped lunatic uh, somewhere or other they hear on a transistor radio and uh, one thing adds up to another and the escaped lunatic turns out to be their scout leader. That was my biggest fear as a child, that uh, parents, guardians, teachers, whomever, would turn out to be a batshit. And I would find myself at the uh, a tender age of nine trying to figure out how to get myself out of this uh, situation. It probably speaks to something very deep in my psyche, probably colored my psyche up to the present day. <laughs> that is definitely a fear. <laughs> mm -hmm. So while we're on the subject, Mitch, what is your 
personal relationship, if any, to horror movies? Would you consider yourself a horror fan? or? I certainly would consider myself a horror fan. And one of the things that fascinates me about horror in movies is that it may be the one category of movie that corresponds to belief. Uh, I'm not sure, for example, if most of us would even know the word exorcist or exorcism had it not been for the film. That might just be one of these crossword terms that 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 you sort of have in the back of your mind if you scratch your head you can remember what it means and so people will watch films about uh, demonic possession exorcism uh, ghost stories life after death falling into other dimensions what have you and they they do associate belief with these things and sometimes i think uh, reasonably so other times they're making uh, obviously a huge leap but we all might groove to star trek but we don't think captain kirk is real we don't think luke skywalker is real we recognize them as archetypes and yet for her there is the hint and the whisper uh, and the possibility of there being something real, whether it's a, a strange colony of belief in movies like uh, The Village or a Children of the Corn or Midsummer. There are indeed, of course, strange colonies of belief in the contemporary world. I personally was very interested in uh, Hereditary because I, I was very interested in this retentive, I suppose you could call it semi-satanic cult and what they were doing. And of course, once you get to the headless bodies being animated and such, you start to exit the realm that most of us have personally witnessed. But the director took care to weave into the film aspects of belief as, as the same director did in Midsummer, And I really appreciated that. I mean, you can always tell when somebody is using off-the-shelf ideas, images, visuals, concepts, tropes from elsewhere in the genre versus when he or she is bringing original research to the table. It's an unmistakable rising currency when somebody's bringing original research to the table. You know, part of the problem, I think, with, with our genre entertainment is not that it, it grows old per se, because I never get tired of watching Dracula, for example. There must be more remakes of Dracula than any other uh, screen uh, treatment under the sun. And right. yet I seem to never tire of it when it's done well, because it is so very archetypal, ditto for Frankenstein. And yet genre entertainment does get boring when it's overly self-referencing, when it's not Im importing things uh, that are fresh through the eyes of the screenwriter, the director, maybe the actors, into the genre. And that's when I get really excited over something. That's when I feel something is really fresh, even if thematically uh, we've seen it before. I'm a huge fan of the documentary uh, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, which you were obviously involved in. Great documentary. Now, you mentioned yourself in that documentary, you know, that uh, religious experimentation and radicalism has been a part of us since our colonial history. So do you think that history is sort of informing our current interest slash resurgence of these folk horror films, maybe scratching an old itch? Well, it, it certainly is based on real history. Breakaway colonies played a very big part in settling this country, as it happens. I mean, the Shakers opened up their first village in uh, 1776 uh, outside of Albany, New York, in, in central New York State. And, and those villages spread as far south as Kentucky, as far north as Maine. Uh, central New York State was settled uh, significantly by followers of a, a woman named Jemima Wilkinson, who was a spirit medium that declared herself the public universal friend. The city of Philadelphia 
going way back to colonial days, including in the late 1600s, attracted people who were fleeing religious persecution in Central Europe because word went out that it was a, a safe haven as founded by William Penn for people with heterodox religious beliefs. So you start to see some uh, early hermetic clusters there, colonies, late 1600s, early 1700s, uh, and including elsewhere in Pennsylvania, such as the colony of Ephrata. Um, lots of people ventured out to California post-gold rush, post-World War One, because either there was something that they wanted to join or something that they discovered that they wanted to join <laughs> as soon as they arrived. And there were just so many such stories. Uh, so you know, part of part of the settlement of this nation is the story of people seeking a safe harbor for radical religious beliefs. There are so many admixtures to what went on in the development of this country. There's no one storyline that prevails. Obviously, we have the destruction of the Native American civilization. We have the uh, uh, catastrophe of centuries of, of slavery. There's commerce, so on and so forth. There's mercantilism, but there's also belief. And people have to to really understand the development of the nation. And for example, I think why the English succeeded where the French did not, that had something to do with belief. I mean, of course, the French did succeed. The French settled big parts of North America. But the fact that the English prevailed in part, in part, uh, emerged from the fact that colonies were being ceded by people who were fleeing a persecution in the old world, which was a big feature of post-Elizabethan life in England, in other parts of Europe, but, but England in particular uh, experienced a grave disappointment uh, after Elizabeth's death that uh, things weren't as liberal as we we thought they were and so that that instigated some people to, to, to that pushed some people to take the journey across the Atlantic so yeah the breakaway colony the strange colony which I write an essay about to go with the box set of Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched it is a big feature of, of modern life and, and of American life in particular you just set the table for me perfectly, man. Uh, so I bought uh, Occult America when it released. You mentioned your own brush with the occult at the age of nine. Uh, for yeah. folks that may not be familiar, can you detail the experience you had at the Silver Moon Diner? <laughs> the Silver Moon Diner, right. Um, <laughs> that diner is still there. It's under a different name right now, but it doesn't look like it used to, but there is a diner there. This was in the early to mid-1970s, and you had little machines selling things called biorhythms and for a dime you could get a little horoscope scroll and other kinds of 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 goodies that were uh that were popular in vending machine form and i used to take out all kinds of books on mythology and folklore flying saucers bigfoot from the local public library and uh, i took out a book of pennsylvania dutch folklore uh one time i was about nine years old and there was this little pentagram-like chart at the it, somewhere in the center spread of the book um, with these little sayings written around it and you're supposed to close your eyes hover a, a pin above the chart wave it around and then bring it down on what would be your fortune and I brought it down on something that said a letter and the next day literally literally the next day a letter arrived and it was an it was an overdue book notice from the public library <laughs> so that must have been an influence on me that was uh, that was my uh, it was my coming to the miraculous moment. <laughs> That's usually how those things happen. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. were your parents at all interested or in those subjects whatsoever? Or 
No, I don't think they were particularly interested. I mean, they were probably aware of certain folklore that maybe had gotten repeated, traveled over from from Europe. Although actually sometimes folklore that we think is from Europe is from somewhere else. And in America, got mixed in with other traditions. For example, there's a bit of Jewish folklore that if um, you're worried it's going to rain and the rain might spoil a wedding or a picnic or something, you stick a knife in the ground. And I'm fairly convinced that that is actually derived from hoodoo, where uh, practitioners of hoodoo, very often black Americans in the South, assembled a system that features uh, retentions of certain West and Central African religious traditions. And um, you'll find sometimes within hoodoo, reformed offerings, prayers, uh, ceremonies to uh, Chongo, the West African god of uh, thunder and lightning, who is said to uh, chop at the clouds with an ax. And there were folkloric retentions in the American South, ex-slaves either inducing it to rain or inducing it to stop raining by doing a pantomime of chopping at clouds with an ax or a knife. And I'm fairly sure that's where this knife in the ground came from. It might have just been something that was picked up by maybe Jewish migrants who had come into contact with slaves or ex-slaves. Um, I've never found roots for it in Europe, but I have found roots for it in the American South. Anyway, my parents would occasionally reference such things, but beyond that, the only interests in our home were very workaday interests. So while we're sort of on occult America, when did you begin to piece the ideas and information together yourself and ultimately decide this is a topic that needs to be highlighted in this book? And were there certain threads that you pulled on that stood out to you early on? I think that whenever I embark on any kind of book, I'm always looking to defend something. There's always a character, a person, an idea that I feel has not been given proper due. And there must have been a collating moment in my psyche before I started working on Occult America where I came to feel that there were these acolytes of occultic thought, uh, Neville Goddard, uh, Manley P. Hall, some of folks who were lesser known, Wallace D. Waddles from New Thought Tradition, Madam H.P. Blavatsky, who lived for certain principles that often got buried, ignored, or the figures themselves, at least at the time of my writing the book, had not been heard of. And so I wanted to do something to explore their backgrounds, their lives, their failures, their foibles, but also their successes in a way that was mature, in a way that was serious, and to really bring tools of historicism to the table. When I first wrote that book, a number of the figures involved had either not been written about biographically or maybe they had been written about, but from a very either hagiographic perspective where someone was just skinning the surface of their life and maybe even repeating organizational lore rather than things that had really been researched, or they were written about in very dismissive tones Mm -hmm. by academics or observers who were prone to think that anyone whose hands were smudged with occult subject matter was ipso facto not to be taken seriously. And obviously, neither of those approaches was satisfying. So that's what that's what drove me into the book. I've always wanted to ask you this since I've read the book. Uh, if you were to reshape Mount Rushmore to reflect the grandfathers of the American occult, who do you think would make the cut? <laughs> wow, that's a wonderful question. 
Well, Madame Blavatsky would certainly have to be up there, even though she spent only a very short time in the United States. Her effects were just so influential, they were just everywhere. Uh, can these be only Americans who go up on... on no, on was, your call, man. <laughs> I'd have to put Alistair Crowley on there, because love him or hate him, or, or any number of points in between, and there are plenty in between, uh, he was just so influential in giving voice and expression and aesthetic to ceremonial magic. Uh, I would put Vice President Henry R. Wallace up on that uh, mountain because Henry Wallace was, um, as some of your listeners know, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's second uh, vice president. He was overshadowed by Roosevelt's third vice president, Harry Truman, who went down in history, whereas Wallace is largely forgotten. I just think Wallace represents, I mean, he's almost the polar opposite of Crowley in every conceivable way, and yet he represents the integrity and the dignity of the mystical or occult search. He was very steeped in astrology, theosophy, uh, Native American shamanism, different religious and, and Eastern strains at a time when these things were not popular or widely known in America. So for sheer dignity, integrity of search and authentic influence on public life, I'd have to put him up there. And let's see, what an interesting choice for a a third father of American occultism. It's funny, there are there are certain people who I, I did not include in the book because I, I just felt, I think frankly, I didn't fully uh, grasp or sympathize with the depth of their, their influence or maybe their influence has become felt more plainly in the years since I wrote the book. Um, so for example, in my new book, Modern Occultism, I read a great deal about Jack Parsons, and even though Jack died at a relatively young age, and is arguably, or was, very obscure on the American scene, he's becoming better and better known, uh, almost like Nikola Tesla a generation ago was obscure and today is, is better known, um, widely known of course. Um, Jack, I thought, also represented something of the search that was very valuable and very important. I might put Jack up there because I think that even though his life was short, he reached a point towards the end of his career where he was looking for, he was looking into whether magic could be greatly, greatly simplified and whether ceremonial magic, liturgy, ritual rites uh, had been too layered over with, with orthodoxies and steps and ceremonies and that's a part of my search that is very active and very alive right now. So I might put Jack up there. I'm sure there's someone I'm forgetting, and there's so many other figures who could be mentioned who were not specifically involved with magic, like the abolitionist Frederick Douglass, but whose encounter with magic formed a pivotal turning point in life, in the case of Frederick when he was a teen. So there's so many figures uh, who could go up there, but I might satisfy myself with that group. Uh, very disparate very different kinds of people right it's a short list you know mount rushmore is very constrictive <laughs> i know it's yeah. like my, my my choices are quite limited <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> right to the point <laughs> uh, more recently you released the kabbalion documentary of you know exploring yep. the book of the same name uh can you take us through your initial introduction into the book sure years ago when i read the kabbalion and i think I probably wrote about this on the website Boing Boing, so it's still up there, so your listeners can check my historicism. I didn't take it very seriously. Uh, I understood the book to have been written in 1908, I, uh, which it was, of course. It was Its author is William Walker Atkinson, a greatly energetic Chicago lawyer, New Thought um, practitioner, 
who wrote under the pseudonym Three Initiates, creating many, many decades of speculation. And at first when I read the book, I thought it was just serviceable, serviceable new thought that was dressed up in Egyptian hermetic garb. And I had no particular other comment to make about it. Um, For a variety of reasons, I found my way back to the book, uh, and there was one summer where I read it consecutively about five times through, and I came to feel maybe because my own studies in Hermeticism had deepened that by that point, and quite frankly, I think the more you know about something less seriously, you're able to take yourself. Yeah. And not every fire hydrant needs to be pissed on, and you can kind of relax a little bit. Yeah. And I went back into the book, and I felt thematically, thematically, it was a defensible retention of certain hermetic ideas, and that the author had leavened and intermixed these ideas with ideas from New Thought and some modern uh, metaphysical ideas. But I found it suddenly much deeper and fuller and greater than I had understood. And it was funny, I had two turning points that returned me to the book, I think, uh, and wildly disparate, wildly different in nature. One turning point was that I was writing my second book, One Simple Idea, which is History of the Positive Mind Movement, and I came across a profile from a magazine that used to be very popular and today is no longer known called TV Guide. And it was a magazine that would give everybody local TV listings along with articles. And it was probably the most popular magazine in America at one time. You know, gaze upon my work, see mighty in despair. And now it's gone. <laughs> it's a website now. Uh, but anyway, the cover, this must have been, oh, I don't know, maybe this was in uh, 19 maybe the late 1970s, 1980. The cover uh, featured the comedic actor Sherman Hemsley, who mm. was uh, played George Jefferson on the popular sitcom The Jeffersons, also one of the most popular sitcoms in America. And the story said, um, you'll never believe how he lives or, or what he believes in. And in the article, the profiling journalist revealed that the Kabbalion had been a big turning point. He was asked how he became successful, how he went from being this unknown stage actor to being America's arguably most famous sitcom actor. And he said, I, I, I encountered the man with the book and it changed everything. And he wouldn't say what book it was. And then he kind of grumbled, I don't want to advertise no book. And then the, the reporter spoke to his housemate, a man named Andre Pavan, and Andre confirmed that it was, in fact, the Kabbalion. And that got me sort of interested because I like I like real-world examples uh, of people talking about how a practical philosophy changed their life, and I was all the more impressed that he wouldn't name the book. He didn't want to be seen as a spokesperson for anything. And then there was also a religious scholar, prominent religious scholar, who's now deceased, I had mentioned something about the Kabbalion, and perhaps I was being a little bit dismissive, and he said to me, you know, uh, there are some good ideas in that little book. And it was the kind of book that I suspect he wouldn't have written about because it wasn't considered material of uh, sufficient respectability as a subject for a professor to be writing about. But he spoke to me privately, spoke to me sincerely, and it returned me to the book, and so uh, I fell into it. And it, I guess, like um, Sherman Helmsley, I could say, you know, I met the man with the book, <laughs> and it changed everything for me because it led to that documentary, which we shot on location in Europe. Um, I'm sorry, in Egypt, and it was a life-changing experience. 
Yeah. And how long did it take the identity of the three initiates to become public? Oh, wow. Even early in the days of, of online culture, people were continually debating it. Uh, there was a concession that, sure, Atkinson was one of the writers, but another writer was said to be Paul Foster Case, the American occultist who founded uh, Builders of the Adidam or Bota. Another was said to be Michael Witte, another Chicago-area occultist who had collaborated with uh, Case for a while. The fact is there's so much documentary evidence pointing to it being Atkinson that it's irresistible. Uh, Atkinson himself, in a who's who in America, in a who's who in America application, uh, I think it was in 1912, identified himself as the sole author. I've never had reason to doubt that because his name and fingerprints appear on everything. It certainly reads like him. He made a habit of using bylines. And if he had collaborated with Paul Foster Case, Case uh, would have been 24 years old at the time and was a very, very new migrant to Chicago. So I'm not sure that they would have, I, I, first of all, there's no documentary indication that the men ever met, but had they, which is certainly possible, the occult scene was quite rich in Chicago and people were uh, bumping into one another all the time. But I, I think that, that Case was fairly uh, a newcomer to the city. Uh, he was pretty young. His full journey had not yet taken shape. So I think the likelihood that he and Atkinson, who was well-established at that time, would have collaborated is, is slender. So I take Atkinson at, at his word. Just a sidebar, I, I write for Rumor Magazine, and I'm a good friend with Andrea, and I know you just visited Fantasia Film Festival recently. Rumor was heavily involved there. Did you enjoy yourself? Oh, enormously. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I found it to be... In terms of sh like sheer programming delight, a festival where I couldn't stop checking boxes as to things that I wanted to see, and the audience was just absolutely far out and wonderful. My partner's film, My Animal, was was screening there. That's opening in just a couple of weeks. That's a werewolf romance, uh, and and it won an audience award, and we we're very happy about that. And also got to see a documentary that is very important called Satan Wants You about the earliest inception of the Satanic Panic in the 1980s and how uh, checkered and calico and uh, wretchedly untruthful that whole uh, media scare, legal scare was, and, 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 and the vast, vast number of lives that were damaged beyond repair through false accusations amidst that scare. So that documentary was super important to me. I appreciate the way they programmed that festival in a mixture of fantasy-based, but also documentary-based material. And it creates a, a tremendous, tremendous kind of energy uh, in connection with that festival. I wish I could have stayed longer. Uh, so, Mitch, uh, what is your definition of magic and how can we use it in our lives? I would say magic is the ceremonial effort to concretize will. And I think that we all walk around with deeply held wishes. And I do believe that our psyches have abilities of selection, and I would even say causation, intermingled with a lot of other complexities that 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 crisscross throughout our world i can't say it often enough we experience many laws and forces that's why i avoid the term law of attraction or manifest not because i'm shy about using popular terms but i don't share any connotation and i don't want to offer any suggestion that we dwell under one mental super law we dwell under a lot of laws and forces within this little sphere that we happen to live in. But I do think that amongst those, 
there is an extra physical or non-local component to the psyche. We might be involved in selecting certain events through focus of emotion and intellect. I believe very strongly there's something there. I explore it in detail in my book, Daydream Believer. I also explore it uh, towards the closing of the new book, Modern Occultism. And my search, uh, apropos of magic, is very similar to uh, Jack Parsons' search two generations ago, which is that if one has warranted belief that the psyche has extra physical aspects, if I'm correct, if my gambit is correct, and I think it is based on not only testimony, but developments in the perceptual sciences over the past uh, 100 plus years, um, ranging from psychical research to uh, quantum mechanics, quantum theory to neuroplasticity. I think that we have sufficient evidence to support a warranted belief that the mind has extra physical abilities. And if that's true, if that's true, is realization of that sufficient in and of itself to do an end run, so to speak, around the ceremonies and rites and rituals of magic, even the super simple ones like chaos magic, like making a sigil. Not that I'm prepared to dispense with all the props and the guardrails. I'm certainly not. I'm not walking around like Neo at the end of Matrix um, <laughs> or anything close. But it is a question. Does realization itself abrogate some of the need for magic and ceremony? I enjoy your lecture, uh, Case Closed, ESP is Real. I know we don't have time for a full lecture, but just for a listener who may not be familiar, can you speak about some of the research we have access to now and where it points? I know I'm a big fan of Dr. Dean Radin, and he, oh, who sure. has done a, a lot of work in this field as well. Yeah. In this country, in the U.S., parapsychology or the study of ESP, anomalies, clairvoyance, precognition, has been an academic field and has been located on campuses, although fitfully since the early 1930s. And uh, the rap on ESP, of course, is that there's not a shred of evidence or the evidence hasn't proven replicable or the evidence has proven polluted. The shred pollution and non-replicable arguments run riot on Wikipedia. And um, if a journalist on deadline or a student or whatever does a casual search uh, for ESP-related topics online, what I've just described uh, represents probably the first five or six search results that that will come up and people very rarely look past those first five or six search results that's one of the maladies of our era but the fact is there's abundant ev evidence it's it's proven absolutely a uh, bulletproof it's been juried more closely than most statistical evidence emergent from any fields that gather uh, stats uh, including medicine and social sciences including pharmacological studies and so forth what's more the evidence has proven replicable you'll you'll often find statements on wiki and and other primary sources that will say that uh, evidence that's been produced for ESP or precognition has been found to be problematic and proven non-replicable not only is that not correct but in fact that material has been uh, juried, parsed, examined, raked over m m more than most statistical evidence in our era. And if we're looking for a poster child in terms of, of bad practices, ESP is approximately the last place to look. Uh, one of the things I've written about quite recently have been experiments into precognition that were conducted by a clinical psychologist at Cornell named Daryl Bem. Uh, Bem wrote his first paper on the topic in the year 2011. His findings have been meta-analyzed in a, a meta-analysis encompassing 90 trials, including the originals, in um, 
33 different labs in 14 different nations and have been found to be uh, statistically confirmatory, statistically valid. Uh, this is no joke. You will learn the opposite on, on Wiki. Uh, Wiki, which is a wonderful, wonderful resource for a lot of different things, great place to go if you want to know about the Napoleonic Wars. But if you want to know about ESP research, it's a terrible place to go because like everything online, it's a system. And if you figure out, you know, the uh, you know, to put it in the bluntest terms, if you figure out how to game the system, if you're a good systems analyst, you can go in there and you can, you know, form with a, a, a like-minded community of people and and find yourself with a lot of latitude and people who are skeptical of this research for various reasons that I think touch more upon human nature than they do upon replicability, rationality, reason. Those who have a deeply and, and emotionally, sentimentally felt sense of opposition to this material have succeeded. Uh, they've won. So um, what I'm describing is, is, is I think, an intellectually successful position, but also a minority position, because it's very hard to get word out there in a reasonable way about this material. You've mentioned your new book, Mitch, Modern Occultism. Uh, if someone's looking to buy the book, what would you say it, would they find within the pages? What was your goal in this book? My goal was to create a history of occultism from late antiquity up through today as a thought movement, and I'm happy with the outcome. It's uh, I say that as a, a happily exhausted uh, guy who spent many, many months unshaven, sitting in his underwear, consuming coffee, and um, not getting a hell of a lot of sleep. But I, I, I put enormous labor into it. I wanted to make it uh, detailed, readable, historically as airtight as I could in terms of method, reference, sources. And I, I've really tried to tell a very epic, dramatic, but also thorough and comprehensive and wholly intellectually defensible story of how the occult has played out in our world, stripping away all supposition, uh, fanciful uh, theories. Uh, and if I lean or rely upon one of those, I state as much very, very clearly. We're all entitled to our own picadillos as long as they're labeled. And I've really made a great effort to create uh, a reliable, and I hope a dramatically readable story of occultism as a, a thought movement in modern life. Right, and I've read a bit a bit of the new book, and in it you describe yourself as a critical but believing historian yeah. of, can you share with us some of the practices you participated in that made you a believer? Sure, I, I've always been interested in the topics that I write out uh, about, and I think it is important to put my cards on the table as a believing historian. As I point out in the book, in fact, most historians of religion are believing historians. Most of our histories of religious figures, movements, churches, actually and in fact come from people who are either congregants in or adjacent to those traditions. That very often colors a choice of topic among religious scholars, commentators, historians. So. Uh, in one sense, I'm stating what ought to be obvious, but people don't like to put their cards on the table because they fear that if they signal belief, it will compromise the reader's or critic's assessment of his or her judiciousness. But in fact, I make the case that standing at the center of a contemporary movement critically and allowing yourself to see the values that emanate from it uh, can also help you identify the great chasm between those those values and their failures. So you get to see what goes on between the dreaming and the coming true, so to speak. As far as my practices are concerned, they span far and wide. 
I have been very deeply interested in hoodoo, as I was referencing earlier. I'm very deeply interested in certain esoteric philosophies, particularly uh, that of uh, the spiritual philosopher G.I. Gurdjieff. I spent a number of years in a community of seekers dedicated to his work. As far as daily practices, a transcendental meditation is a, a daily commitment for me. Uh, I'm deeply interested in mind metaphysics or what is sometimes called new thought the question that we were discussing earlier of whether the psyche has outpicturing or selective elements is a, of huge interest to me personally i'm interested in the left-hand path philosophies of anton levey and michael aquino who are right about pretty extensively in the book so those are some of the areas into which my search travels have you ever had a negative experience with any practices the only time I've ever had a negative experience is when I have given myself over to people who did not deserve my uh, did not deserve uh, authority in a given situation, and that could be tough. You know, that can be tough because sometimes people find their way to a spiritual figure or a practice because they're in an emotionally vulnerable place, and sometimes they find their way uh, short term, sometimes long term. Uh, I would say there's no individual practice that has ever left me uh, disappointed or hurt in any way, but there are situations, not recent ones, but there are situations, yeah, perhaps more recent than I'd like to acknowledge, now that I turn back the pages, um, there are situations where I've given my trust to people who didn't warrant it. And I think one needs to be really, really careful of that. It doesn't mean that if you encounter somebody uh, that you're interested in following up with for whatever reason, you have to check every box until you get to the point where, you know, they're, they're, they're a cross between Jimmy Stewart and Gandhi. You know, that's not going to happen. But I would say to listeners, don't put yourself ever in a position of isolation unless you're really, really sure that you trust and believe in the the group leaders or whoever it is you're with, which is to say, don't go on a retreat or, you know, something of that nature, unless you feel really certain of that and have reasons to be certain. And the other thing is don't place all of your trust in any one person. If you get told something by a teacher or a guru or a psychic or whatever, verify, verify, verify. There is no greater friend that you have on the path than your own self-verification and let nobody take it from you. Well said. Well, Mitch, not all of my guests are occult historians. You know, I may be chatting with an actor or director or what have you, author, but I always like to sneak in this question and we've kind of been circling around it because I like to find out all of these creatives that we watch and listen to if they have any interest in the occult secretly, you know. So have you have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Well, I have, but nothing terribly dramatic in terms of ghosts appearing or Red Seas parting or the earth opening up or you know, people levitating off beds or anything of that nature. I have had experiences. There is an experience that I write about in one simple idea, and I repeat the experience in um, Daydream Believer, just because it was so significant. It, it comes from the quotidian precincts of life, but sometimes quotidian things are so important because that's where we dwell most of the time. We're not hiking through the desert in search of the promised land. We're going to work, doing our commutes, making our coffee. I was given a demand by a teacher to find a very, very unusual object in New York City. It didn't seem like such an unusual object, but as I undertook effort to find it, I found that it was just crazy hard and implausibly so. But uh, I tried really, 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 really hard. and 
just 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 on the brink of giving up i found this object in the least expected place in the least likely way and i can tell you i'm speaking in shorthand just out of respect for time but it was not ordinary and statistically there's no actuarial table that could have contained it um including uh well people speak of the law of large numbers as a way of saying well strange things have to happen to somebody and that's a slightly problematic concept because law of large numbers is better for measuring things that occur across a vast population than it is analyzing the event in a person's life, which has its own almost unquantifiable emotions and meaning bound up to it that, that heightens the meaning of the event beyond a scale that I, I suspect is statistically measurable or, or measurable within reasonable numbers. So anyway, after undertaking a search for this object, which proved impossible, and I was really sincere about it, and I was really hardworking about it, and I was really dogged about it. The instant before I gave up, it turned up in the most unusual place in the most unlikely way. And I suppose that for me was a core sample pointing to the actuality of thought causation. But again, I hasten to add, there are so many intervening factors that when these things occur, in my estimation, they are real, but repetition can be very tricky because our world is so dynamic. Mitch, what advice would you give to someone looking to scratch the surface on the esoteric? Would there be any specific practices or books that you would recommend? Well, fortunately, we live in an age where there are a lot of good books, uh, a lot of good uh, practitioners. I would say that a person should follow his or her passions, whims. Just just don't look for anybody's approbation uh, to, to tell you what you should gravitate towards, what you should check out, check out whatever you want, but also take seriously, as I was alluding earlier, your own capacity for self-verification, including your own capacity to determine what you're after. Sometimes people try to take our questions away from us. A person might want something in life only to be told, well, that's superficial, or which part of you is, is asking for that because you're in pieces, or that comes from the ego. And I don't I don't abide any of those approaches. I think the mature sensitive individual is perfectly capable of identifying what he or she uh, is after and I think that we within the spiritual culture rely far too heavily on formulations, conceptualizations that there are there's a higher and there's a lower, there's a white magic and a black magic, there's ego versus non-attachment, there's personality versus essence. I think these are all concepts that seem overwhelmingly familiar by dint of, of repetition, but they're not concepts that have to control the individual in his or her search. In your lecture of God of the Outsiders, you talk about your early experiences as a child with Satanism as it was presented in your religion. Can you take us through how your understanding changed from that point? Oh, sure. Um, you know, first of all, the term demon, as it was used in the original Greek, was a neutral term. It did not mean a bad guy's spirit. It meant it meant a spirit, an incorporeal uh, entity. Could be good, could be evil, uh, like a lot of the people that we encounter online and uh, or at the grocery checkout line, for those who still actually leave their house to go to the grocery store. And in Judaism, which is the tradition that I grew up in, I had an Orthodox bar mitzvah, grew up in a fairly traditional Jewish home. The concept of the demonic and the satanic is more neutral than is communicated in the culture at large. And the reason for that is a lot of the early scriptural concepts didn't become 
calcified, defined, and name-stamped in our culture until centuries after biblical history, sometimes still within antiquity, but long after the supposed patriarchs and matriarchs had ceased uh, walking the earth. And within Judaism, first of all, during the Jewish um, high holy day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement for sins, there's a passage read from the Torah, and I think it's in the, the book of Leviticus, where, I don't know, it must be in Genesis, where the Hebrews are wandering in the desert and they are, uh, they appease a demonic being in the desert named Azazel, uh, to whom they release uh, goats as a form of sacrifice, which is where the concept of scapegoat comes from in our uh, contemporary culture. And I remember being so surprised and electrified in a certain sense to hear the rabbi or the cantor, the cantor being a, a traditional member of the not the rabbinate but 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 one who contributes to the service through hymn and song hearing this name of the demon uh, azazel uh, intoned in a, a a very traditional synagogue and I, I was just fascinated by it because it wasn't presented in any kind of condemnatory way so much as it was just presented as well folks um this is life and this guy's going to get his due too and uh, the original Hebrew term of, of Satan was uh, hasatan, or um, sometimes known as the adversary, sometimes known as the prosecutor. Uh, again, not, not presented as in this polarized way, exactly. So that was always interesting to me as a kid. And as an adult, I sought to gaze back on Western culture and the manner in which prevailing views of the satanic had taken a shape and the manner in which some of those views have been challenged and pushed back against, most specifically uh, by the romantic poets and dramatists, uh, William Blake, Lord Byron, uh, Percy Bush Shelley, among others. And I was very interested in how the romantics and to some degree the transcendentalists uh, made a different reading uh, of the satanic. And I undertook such a reading myself and came to feel that there's a different esoteric reading of the satanic that can be made in Western history uh, that has nothing to do with maudlin uh, fantasies or entertainments or satanic panic canards that, that got spread a generation ago, but that in fact uh, captures the presence of a usurping uh, rebellious force, arguably, arguably even a liberatory emancipating force like the serpent in Genesis. And that was very rousing to me and that's become part of my journey real quick mitch has come to my mind when so you were you practiced judaism early on when did you sort of stray from that well i would say um probably oh by the way uh, azazel is in uh, leviticus i was just uh, wanted to confirm that i would say uh, probably in my early uh 30s i came to feel that the um the liturgy of Judaism, although it's very beautiful and quite old, going back to the Middle Ages, didn't speak to what I was looking for. I, I think that the, 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 the current part of my search probably began around that time. I have no brief against congregational spirituality of any kind, but for me, the congregational experience and then later on the group experience was not a place to nest permanently. Mm. So my search today is a very individual search, having passed through congregational spirituality, having passed through group practice, 
maybe someday I'll go back to it. I don't know. But right now, my search is, is very much a individual search. Well said. Well, Mitch, it's uh, been a pleasure chatting with you here. Just to put a bow on everything, uh, just tell folks what's on the horizon for you and where they can find you. Sure. Um, well, the new book is called Modern Occultism, and that's out September 19th. That's going to be out in print, audio, digital. If anybody is so inclined to pre-order that book, I certainly appreciate it. It can be pre-ordered any place you buy your books. Starting a new book called Happy Warriors, which is portraiture of the lives of some of the leading lights and figures in new thought um i'm certainly doing a lot of podcasts and media in the coming weeks uh to promote modern occultism and the reason i said yes to your show is because your questions were so specific and enthusiastic and i just want to thank you for your preparedness and how well versed you are and everything It, it just makes these discussions a pleasure Thank you, Mitch. That, that means a lot. Uh, big fan of your work. And quick, have you ever considered writing fiction? I've considered it, but it is a very different art form than nonfiction. And I, I think from time to time about short stories. I think from time to time about screenplays. But I, I don't take lightly entering that arena because I believe that it would take thousands of hours of effort before I could justly join the ranks of people who who write fiction and screenplays it's a different art form a different um medium than 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 writing nonfiction. so were i ever to approach it it would not only be on bended knee but it would be uh with i'd be prepared to wear out several pairs of shoes as well you, you know i don't think one can just leap from one lane to the other it would require a tremendous life change well said, Mitch, and thank you again, man. I'm going to let you get out of here, and I'm going to look forward to what you got in the future. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. All right, you have a good day, man. All right, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Mitch. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.